It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Six thirty, Chad. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at six on Six Thirty, Chad. Based on the extremely graphic novel, it's the most insane show ever made. I'm the only one who can hear that. Happy new series premieres tonight at ten on Showcase. Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on the voice of your Edmonton Oilers and Eskimos, 630 Chad. All right, good to have you along for the ride tonight. Been a good show. You can get more on the Oilers on 630Chad.com. McDavid, Latestu, McClellan. Interesting comments from all of them today. We had Tony Twist on the show as we uh, continue Enforcers Week here on Inside Sports. And joining me right now, Wojtek Wojcicki, who used to own the Edmonton Drillers indoor soccer team uh, for three years. So I guess we're looking at 97 until the fall of uh, 2000. When Wojtek, you had to pull the plug on the team. And we're just talking about the human element. I mean, did you do this yourself? Have to go around telling players, coaches, staff that it, you know, didn't look like they had jobs anymore? That must have been an incredibly difficult day. Uh, it was probably one of the toughest day of my life, especially because of the fact that you forged relationships with those kids, and um, um, it was to to let them know that. I wouldn't own that team anymore. And that's what that GIC was for. So basically the league took over the uh, the running of that team. And uh, it was uh, it was a tough day, tough pill to swallow. And you, did you do it all yourself? I like did. To, to everybody? Yeah. I did. Different, I, different groups? We gathered in a classroom um, at a practice facility, and uh, I told them. And what expressions on players' faces did you see? Um... It was um, it was really really hard. Um, one individual that uh, that I won't name um, literally gave me hell. How could you do this to us? How dare you? What he didn't understand was it wasn't something that I was doing. It was circumstance, and the circumstance was that. We just couldn't get the revenue that we needed in order to be able to sustain the team. Uh, look, the rela- you know, you talk about the human element of it. What do you inject into a community? Not only do you give kids the opportunity to have idols and um, because they're, they're progressing in their particular soccer uh, skills and they have dreams of becoming you know, the, all of these particular players, but you're also extending certain things to a community. I can tell you, you know, somebody asked me the question, was it worth it? You know, other than the money, the experience of owning that particular team was probably one of the most exciting things that I've ever done in my life. Imagine being able to hear from a hospital like a Stollery Hospital when the director phones you up and says, your team was here all day today. And I said, is there a problem? And I said, no, on the contrary. 
your team was here the entire day. They played with the kids. They woke them up in the morning. They had lunch with them. They had dinner with them, and they tucked them into bed. You know, the ounce of adrenaline that you gave those kids as a rush, maybe it gave them an extra day, an extra week, an extra month. How can we thank you enough for doing that? Those were the magic moments of being able to own that professional soccer team. Wojtek, we got in touch because of the FC Edmonton story. Sure. And uh, the, the Fath brothers, Tom Fath, you know, mm-hmm. put, put a lot into that franchise. We'll see what happens to them if they get a new league. But, I mean, look, you can go a couple incarnations of the Drillers yes. going back to the 80s, the, the Aviators. Mm-hmm. Your, your incarnation of the Drillers, now FC Edmonton. Do you think pro soccer can make it in Edmonton in any, in any form, in any league? A- absolutely it can. So what has to happen? Um, I, I think that, you know, um, once you've had a taste of uh, the NHL in Edmonton, you know, uh, it's not that easy in order to be able to sell junior hockey t- uh, tickets, right? If that was the only thing that was here in town. Um, I, I think what needs to happen is what's happened in Montreal. So the Saputos were part of the NPSL, and part of part of owning an NPSL franchise was um, the ability to, in order to do an MLS franchise. And I had that opportunity. It ran out of time. But they have pursued it. And uh, you look at Montreal, look at Vancouver. These were teams that were in the NPSL league. And look at how they're thriving in the MLS. So I think that's where you need to be able to go. It's going to take capital. And it's going to take investment. And uh, it's going to take basically the, um, the soccer community embracing it uh, in order to be able to make that happen. It has to become big league. We're a, we're a big city now. And uh, it, it'll be tough to sell something that people consider maybe subpar relative to the uh, uh, point of excellence that's out there. And, you know, in the world... The MLS uh, is sort of, you know, chuckled on uh, when you look at European soccer sure. and so on and so forth. But in North America, that's the league that you need to be able to be a part of. Wojtek, one more for you. How long did it take you personally to bounce back from the driller ceasing to well, exist? I, <laughs> I took a little <laughs> bit of a sabbatical for right. a while. And, uh, you know, just to get my life back together again. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to report the fact that, you know, the, the marketing communication side of things is something that I've always done. I've had a passion for, and I continue to do that uh, to this day. I have clients here, have clients in Europe, I have clients in the United States, uh, outside of this province. And um, it, um, you know, it took about nine years in order to be able to get back into, into life. Wow. Amazing. It was tough. Well... Incredible story, Wojtek. Thanks for sharing with us tonight. I know we're getting a lot of uh, texts appreciating the interview and, and opening up some of the some of the things you and the drillers went through, and I was a very, very small part of, I, you of know the what? team's history. Just think, you started your career <laughs> that with was the drillers, right? My first was your, it was your moment, right? And I remember <laughs> that face when I'm looking across, and uh, you know what? You had to be good at your job because look where you are today. Well, thank you very much. Wojtek Wojcicki, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks a lot, Reed. Inside Sports on Chet. Donate a toy today and make Christmas come true for 25,000 less fortunate kids through 630 Chad Santa's Anonymous.
You're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Chad. Here we go. All right, thanks a lot for tuning in tonight at 716 Inside Sports on 630 Chad. Really fun show, and we're not slowing down. We had Tony Twist, we had Wojtek Wojcicki taking you behind the scenes of uh, owning a pro soccer franchise in Edmonton. He owned the Edmonton Drillers in the late 90s. They eventually shut down in the fall of 2000. Well, today, uh, this is really cool because we you don't often get to interview uh, referees. They, uh, I mean, after an NHL game, a lot of times people will be complaining to Rob and I about calls. We, we got to give our interpretation. We don't get to interview the ref. Sometimes I wish we could, but I do, I do get to talk to one tonight. Derek Zalaski, a proud Edmontonian who... Uh, over 1,000 WHL regular season games, uh, 10 championship series. You've worked internationally, Derek, and you recently got the Western Hockey League Milestone Award. First of all, congratulations. Thanks, Reed. Appreciate it. Yeah, good to have you in studio here. So you're uh, you're an Edmonton kid born and raised, eh? Yeah, yeah, you betcha. Grew up on the West End and uh, started my trade uh, at 13 officiating and... I uh, spent many a night in Collingwood and Jasper Place and CAC and all across town. So, yeah, no, it's uh, it's been quite the ride for sure. Now, what possibly possessed a 13-year-old Derek Zalaski to want to be an official? Well, you know what? I was playing hockey, actually, and uh, I was playing Bantam AAA, and uh, I, I actually blew out my knee. Last game of the regular season, somebody need me, and uh, that pretty much did in my playoffs and made me wear a brace for a couple years. So um, I said, you know what? The, I, I was having a little bit more fun refereeing hockey than I was playing. So I, I kind of went down that route and it all started with a, a gentleman, uh, Empton guy by the name of Duncan McDougall, who sent mm-hmm. out letters to Bantam age players looking to see if they wanted to try their ply at officiating. And uh, it was something that interested me and I caught the bug and haven't stopped running ever since. Well, that's awesome because, uh, you know, the and I, I always ask officials this re- regardless of the sport you know and the, and the thing is there's there's abuse you got to start when you're young i mean who wants to be a 14 year old kid and having a, a 40 year old mom or dad yelling at you like is that really is that really worth it how did you get through some of that. And I'm not saying the abuse has stopped, but maybe the, the, the crowd's <laughs> not right on top of you like they used to. Well, I, ironically, we lose probably about 50% of the first-year officials every single year in Canada due to the, the type of pressure that they face and some of the abuse. And so when you're talking 13, 14, 15-year-old kids that are just trying to learn their way and get experience, and the angry mothers of uh, Johnny playing Adam, who uh, who feels that uh, Johnny has a shot at making the NHL, they get really passionate. So as a teenager, you feel really intimidated uh, when you're trying to manage a game as well as deal with adults who are behind the bench as coaches. I didn't seem to have a problem with that per se. It was something that I I enjoyed the challenge, I enjoyed the pressure, and uh, just stuck with it. I I think it's actually even worse at the younger levels because when I'm working a Western Hockey League game, I know that the fans have paid their money and, hey, they're allowed to express their opinion, so you take it all in stride. But when, uh, when you're coming out and doing a minor Hockey Week game and doing it just for the the fun of the kids and the mothers are banging their purses on the glass then it gets a little bit more personal do you still do uh, minor hockey games? Uh, I, I try to help out when possible, but... Uh, but with you're my, pretty busy with the yeah, dub. Yeah, with my involvement in the Western Hockey League and CIS, it it, uh, it makes it pretty tough. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't do a whole lot of minor hockey anymore. So when did you start doing major junior games and give us sort of the Coles notes of, of the path, whether you recruited or had to sort of audition or whatever Yeah, it was? realistically, for me, as a 13-year-old, I just started doing as many games as I possibly could. And, you know... you. 
you, you finally work a, a path where you get noticed by the right person at the right time and using a philosophy of just trying your best every game not knowing who might be in the stands kind of worked out for me so I went from novice to Adam to peewee to bantam and just went all through the level system until finally uh, I think I was about 22 when I first donned uh, the stripes in the Western Hockey League as a linesman and started working from there uh, over at the Agricom actually for the old Empton Ice game so I'm oh, wow, giving okay. away my oh, age yeah, a little yeah. bit well, cool. uh, yeah. unfortunately but uh, th- those are some great memories to, to start it off. Okay so you transition into into refereeing obviously which means mo- I, this is what most people tell me that the advantage is you no longer have to break up fights. <laughs> unfortunately I don't get to watch fights either because as a referee primarily your responsibility is the other players and ensuring that they're not getting involved and getting them back to the bench so I, I would hazard to say that the linesmen have the best view out of anybody so yeah no I uh, I kind of to regret that but I didn't mind breaking up the fights it was the one time I think it was in my second year of officiating where uh, okay final name names it was Darcy Robinson from Saskatoon yeah <laughs> he, uh, he was a big boy and and uh, unfortunately he grabbed me before I can grab him and it uh, it was a little bit tougher so I, I got my introduction into the league pretty quick and how big and tough some of these teenagers really were uh Derek Zalaski joining us on Inside Sports. Uh, Edmontonian recipient of the WHL Milestone Award. He's refed over uh, 1,000 WHL regular season games. You've done world championships. You've done world juniors. And you mentioned, I mean, I've seen you on the ice uh, doing Golden Bears games. Um, Conflict management is such a big part of your job. I mean, most referees would tell you they'd probably prefer not to call penalties or give out misconducts. Do you have a, a tactic you use or do you have to use a different tactic depending on on the situation well really the big thing for us is communication and the more experience that you get throughout the league the the more tools that you feel that uh, you can utilize just with communicating with players because realistically um, if you can either take their attention away from a a hostile situation or just try to answer their question uh, and and try to relieve some of the frustration I think that's what uh, allows you to get through a lot of the conflict management so uh, more often than, than not there's people that are frustrated and and maybe the coaches primarily when they just can't be heard and uh, you know if you have to uh, explain one of the calls or actually uh, just let them vent for a bit then I I think that they can get their point across they know they've been heard and we can move on so it's funny how the game has changed Uh, I think over the the last few years there's been a lot more respect on the ice and uh, as opposed to being demonstrative or trying to get the crowd rallying around you in your home barn so okay so let's role play I'll be a coach, and I wave you over during a whistle. I won't yell here, but I'm like, Zelaski, my guy's trying to break out of the corner, and their guy's hooking him every single time. The stick's around the waist. They're grabbing his jersey. Where's the call? Reed, you know what? We just have to let the players battle. All I can see is that the sticks are parallel, but there's no restraining foul, so we have to let the players uh, battle with each other. And, hey, when I see a penalty, I'll let you know. I may have seen a couple one-minute penalties, but I haven't seen anything worthy of a minor. (laughs) Well, that's a good line. I've yeah, seen a couple, bad, eh? couple one-minute penalties. <laughs> so, but that's something you would pull out, saying, I, I, I see a battle, but I don't actually see a restraint. Right. And they probably don't always agree with you, but... Over, over the years, especially, you know, we're, we get supervised probably at least uh, 30 to 40% of the games. And so we review a lot of video. We uh, get a lot of coaching ourselves, and we go over situations uh, just such as you described. And so having the experience to go through what we're instructed to do and mm-hmm. loading our lips, with exactly what our standard is, all I really did in that situation was just relay to you exactly what we've been taught. So it's really comes
comes naturally when, you know, if you pay attention at the referee camp, then you should right. get through pretty uh, pretty well. Um I mean, it's, it's sometimes you just have to say, like, coach, I heard you, but we're done. Like, we're done talking. Do you ever uh, have to just shut it down? Absolutely, because that, that could be a tactic. Uh, either a coach would use that as a resource to uh, try and get his top line a breather, and so he's going to take as much time <laughs> right. as he can with the official. He's going to try and rally the crowd by uh, being demonstrative towards the referee. He might use some lingo to try and fire his players up. So it's not because it's personal or they're, maybe they're even uh, mad at a call, but they could use it as a tactic. There's some very intelligent coaches in major junior. And so when you can kind of sense that they're doing that, that's when you say, okay, enough, we're done. Because I, I know all you're trying to do is delay or stall. And um, it's, it's a very well-used tactic. For where, sure. where do you get the confidence, though? Like, you seem like you just naturally had it. And like you said, to not take it personally. That still has to be tough sometimes if certain words or, or insults are being used. Absolutely. That, that that first game, my knees were knocking so bad, and I was so intimidated by what seemed to be these men on the ice. And now, you know, 21 years later, uh, really, these are, these are kind of teenagers. <laughs> not to say that they're not intense and very mature, but you have to put it in perspective that... Uh, hey, the, there's a lot of adrenaline, there's a lot of emotions, but other, at the end of the day, I'm there to adjudicate the game. I'm the guy in charge, and so you have to have a leadership mentality out there because uh, if you don't, then the game's just going to get away from you. And I've had my fair share of games get away from me, so you learn through experience. Well, I want to ask you about that. Uh, can you stick around after the 730 News? Because yeah, I, want, I yeah, also sure. want to ask you if you've ever blown a call. I don't know if you'll admit it, but oh I'm going to ask the question anyway. <laughs> you, yeah, no no problem. So, yeah, I can absolutely stick around. In fact, I don't know how much time you have in the program because uh, all the calls I've blown over the years. That you, <laughs> We're going until midnight, folks. <laughs> exactly. Derek Zalaski, WHRF, Inside Sports on Jet. Please support 630 Ched Santa's Anonymous. Find out how at santasanonymous.ca. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Ched. Canadians up 2-1 on the Flames in the third. In overtime, Islanders and Penguins tied 3-3. The Bruins lead Arizona 4-1 with three minutes left. Early in the third, it is the Lightning up 3-2 on the Avalanche. After two, Winnipeg and Florida even at three. Late second period, St. Louis up 1-0 on Dallas. Oilers practice today. They will practice early tomorrow morning and then fly to Montreal. Get the latest on them on 630Ched.com. Reed Wilkins joined in studio by WHL referee Derek Zalaski, recently uh, recognized with the WHL Milestone Award. I congratulated you on that, but I never asked you what it actually meant to get that award and having hit a thousand games and all that crazy stuff? Uh, I think it kind of means I'm old. I, I'm assuming that's probably the, the biggest signifier, but um, they just started doing milestone awards over the last couple of years, and this year they decided to uh, um, recognize the officials with milestone awards. So the uh, the metric is actually 650 games, so as soon as a referee if you reach that... that so you might double it! Well, I know, I, I'm waiting more for years. my second award. I don't know if the plaque gets double the size or if, uh, if I get two ceremonies or what, but I think they'll run me out before that happens. Um, in any regard, uh, there's two officials that uh, have reached that plateau already, um, and so they just decided to uh, to start with the uh, Milestone Awards this year. So, yeah, no, it was, it was really nice to be honoured. It was nice. I had my family at the game. They were able to uh, to see me uh, get honoured just in a brief ceremony, but it was uh, really nice for the league to acknowledge that. Okay. 
two-referee system. It's been around a while now, about a, about a decade since it's been fully intact. Did you have to adjust to it? Uh, I mean, I guess it's business as usual now, but was it difficult at first? It was interesting because uh, it was definitely a different dynamic. We started back in, I believe it was about 2006, and it was only about 30 to 40% of the games that went uh, to referee, and then we gradually got more and more as we were able to get more staffing. So uh, to, to do a game one night in the three-man system and then to do it a second night in the four-man system, it took a, a little difference not only in positioning but in sight lines. And then I find that the players have to adjust as well because they get used to a certain system and they know where the official is going to be. If you change the system up and there's different positioning with the official, next thing you know, they're they're firing the puck along the boards where they think they can, but there's a, a referee standing there. So now that we've basically gone all four-man system, it's, uh, it's a little bit easier. So I, I find um, that you can see stuff uh, obviously in front of you as opposed to having check behind the play. You're not skating a, as much as, as you were before. So your breathing is lower, your your heart rate is lower, and uh, you can make a little bit better decisions. You're not out of breath when you're talking to coaches. So when you're doing a line change by the bench, there's a lot of the communication that we previously talked about that can take place uh, just in that opportunity. Whereas in a three-man system, you're skating from end to end, you're, you're lining up in the end zone, and you don't get that chance for communication. So there's a lot of benefits to it for sure. All right, Derek, you, you put your arm up, and then a couple seconds later you think, uh-oh. I don't think that was a call, or vice versa. Something happens, and a few seconds later, you realize, oh, I think he, I think that was a high stick. Man, and a coach or a player is calling you on it. Like, what do you do? That's the worst. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'm not do- saying it happens yeah, a lot. It doesn't happen a ton, but it does happen. So, unfortunately, if you have your hand up for an infraction and you see the the infraction, if you have doubts, you're still calling the penalty. Um, now, if uh, if you missed one, if if you feel like, oh man, you know, in hindsight that was an infraction, you just have to let it go. You can't let it impact the rest of the game. Oh, I missed that on on team A, so I'm going to make it up with a call on on team B. That's just not the way we think. If we we miss one here, uh, Murphy's Law, it's going to work itself uh, probably by the end of the 60 minutes. So you have to try and keep objective as much as possible. But we're definitely human. Um, we we make mistakes. Uh, we just try to minimize them as much as possible. I mean, have you ever? actually said to a coach or a player after a game where it's like, look, I, in hindsight, maybe I, maybe I didn't get that one right or explain something or how do you... I, ironically, about a, a month ago, there was a play where uh, we thought it was a too-many-men play where um, we thought the, the puck was actually still on the ice surface, but it actually, had actually gone out of play. So two officials on the ice thought it was a too-many-men penalty. The other two officials said, no, 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 like the puck went out of play. So we got together as a, 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 a crew and, and just discussed the situation and we came away with no penalty, even though originally the whistle was for a play that we probably would have penalized them for too many men. So, bottom line, we want to make the right call. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. But but there's situations where you have to <laughs> definitely protect the integrity of the game. And, and uh, I, I'm putting you on the spot because you can't throw me out. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> for, yeah, <laughs> okay. well hey, this this is Enforcers Week, so and, and if you're having me in, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm an element of an enforcer. Maybe a different kind. I, I lost every fight I had when I was a player, so okay. I, I probably wouldn't do so good at throwing you out here. Rob, bro, Rob Brown and I have a theory. If Uh-oh. you've ever heard us on Overtime Open Line. <laughs> so I'm going to present it to you as a true or false. Okay. True or false. Referees count power plays for each team. 
Uh, depending on the night, it, it could be true. Like, we, we're cognizant of it. It doesn't mean that's going to impact the way that we officiate the game. I've had games where I, I've ran seven straight penalties to one team and none to the other team. You just try to judge the penalties as they happen. You're cognizant of, of it. Um, if, if I just ran a team for seven, I don't want to go looking for a penalty the other way, but I'm definitely not going to miss an infraction that happens because that would just increase the frustration level exponentially. Right. And you want the standard, right? 100%. That's the, that's the thing. You want right. a consistent standard. Yeah. At the end of the day, we are going to miss stuff, but um, if we see the infraction, it's just something that we're going to call regardless of who has uh, as many power plays uh, than the other. Derek, I really appreciate you coming in. Again, congratulations on the uh, the Milestone Award, and uh, you, you may get to the 1300 to double, <laughs> double the 650. I hope you don't mind me saying your age. You're 42. I am, correct. Do you, do you have how long you want to keep going? Well, and we I, should mention, I mean, you have a day, a real job, so to speak. I, I, I do, <laughs> yeah. I've actually been working for Ford Motor Company for almost 20 years. I, I'm now the marketing manager there, so it, it's a pretty hectic lifestyle. So I, I carry on a full-time job during the day. Uh, you know, we, we have some weekends, generally speaking, where the games are at, so I'm officiating on the weekends. And then I have a family, too. I, my, my poor wife has been uh, hauling my 8-year-old and 6-year-old around to uh, novice games uh, all across Edmonton. Uh, my novice little kid's on the ice for four times a week and my pre-novice guy is on two times a week so I'm trying to stick around as much as I can to help her out but at some point something's got to give and I've had a pretty good run with uh, all the uh, the milestones I've achieved I've got to travel the world on officiating's dime and uh, seen some real neat experiences so at some point I, I got to devote more time to the old family. Derek thank you so much for coming in and again congratulations and all the best the rest of the season. Thanks so much for having me Reed. Becky Scott is up next Inside Sports on Chet. This is Mike Riley from your Edmonton Eskimos, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Chet. Hey, don't forget about Northern Chicken. 124th Street, 107th Ave. Some guests on Inside Sports get gift certificates to Northern Chicken. Beer, bourbon, and chicken. Order takeout or delivery at Skip the Dishes. Becky Scott grew up in Vermilion in 2002, Salt Lake City Olympics. She won a bronze medal in cross-country skiing. Because of doping, she was later promoted to the gold medal position. She won another medal in 2006. She is now the chair of the World Anti-Doping Association's Athlete Committee. And, of course, we had big news concerning the Olympics doping the Russian Olympic Committee earlier this week. Becky joins me on the line now. Becky, welcome back to Inside Sports. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Reed. How are you? Doing very well. It's always great to catch up with you, and these circumstances are significant, and uh, that is that the uh, IOC has decided that the Russian Olympic Committee will uh, not be able to send athletes to the Winter Games. The the, the clean athletes can compete under the uh, title of Olympic athletes from Russia. You know, first of all, Becky, I'll just start generally. uh, Your reaction to this decision? So, you know, I was pleased. I was, uh, you know, impressed that the IOC took the measures that they did. I felt this was an important and significant step towards... uh, the leveling the playing field and for clean athletes it was a strong statement and uh, i think uh, generally speaking you know people have been happy with the decision were, were you surprised at all because i think becky that sometimes people who watch the olympics or follow it casually um you know think that they're 
enough hasn't been done to try to punish, you know, dopers or to try to even eliminate doping if that's possible. Were, were you a little surprised that they that they went this far this time? You know, yeah, there was a lot of speculation leading up to this decision, that's for sure. And, you know, largely based on what the IOC uh, did right before the Rio Olympic Games, which was to push the decisions over eligibility to the international federations rather than making that call themselves. So you, nobody really knew what they were going to do this time around because they had commissioned their own investigative committee to uh, basically confirm the findings of Professor Richard McLaren. Um, so, you know, and, but, and, but once that evidence uh, was confirmed and the McLaren report was, was really validated, then um, I think they really had no choice. You know, you've got a member state that's been deliberately undermining and corrupting the very rules and sort of fundamental principles upon which sport is based, and you have to take strong measures. There has to be significant consequences for this. Becky Scott joining us on Inside Sports, chair of WADA's Athlete Committee, former Olympic cross-country skier as well from Vermilion. Becky, um, I, I've been talking about this on my talk shows, and I think I have a little bit of cynicism, though, and I certainly hear some from listeners and fans of sport in general as well, where there's people saying, okay, this is this is great, but is this going to discourage nations and athletes from doping in the future, or is this going to make the cheaters try harder? When, when you hear that kind of cynical statement, what, what would you say to people like me and, and people listening who, who still might be a little cynical about this? Well, I mean, first of all, I think your cynicism is justified, and I would say it's a fair perspective to have. I, I'm not uh, completely optimistic all the time either, I'll say that. You know, I've seen a lot and heard a lot and know a lot from this side of sport. Um, and I, I think uh, one of the things that the public and, you know, sports fans need to be aware of now is that the athletes from Russia who will be deemed eligible to compete in Pyeongchang, you know, have to meet a strict criteria. But, but really, we don't know exactly what that standard is yet. And that's where a decision like this is strong, but the devil is in the details. So we, how many athletes we see coming from Russia what standards they've been subject to will they really be clean those are the kind of questions that the public I think is uh, entitled to ask at this point whether or not this discourages doping you know I would just say that it's, it's a long road ahead and certainly I would say a strong statement though in terms of when it's been revealed or exposed that a, a state has sponsored doping, which is a significant difference between just an athlete who's been caught for doping and cheating or a team perhaps that's operated in, as individuals. This was a systematic, you know, institutionalized system of, of doping that was uh, involved a conspiracy and, a, you know, there was a thread running from the Ministry of Sport all the way down to the national team. So for that level and that scale of, of doping, I think the answer was the only one that could have been, which was the suspension of the whole Olympic Committee. But um, yeah, will it will it change things for the better? I hope so. But you know, as I said, I I think that there's a long road to go. Well, and and let me put it to you this way, kind of an off offshoot of that question, and, and I think you just kind of touched on it by saying there's a long road to go. I mean, this will happen in 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 2018. There's some immediate punishment here based on this decision. Could it take, I don't know if you want to pick a number, but the Olympics are every four years. Could it be 8, 12, 20 years, maybe a couple generations of athletes before we 
we truly see the the impact of this? I mean, is that is that fair to say? Well, I think the impact is, has uh, been felt already in that, you know, the Russian Olympic uh, or the Russian Anti-Doping Agency has been uh, virtually dismantled and rebuilt from the ground up. I think uh, that they have made great strides and great efforts to actually improve and change the system within the country. But there's still some steps that need to be taken in terms of the perspective from WADA, which is that there are still outstanding criteria to be met to regain compliance. And uh, and part of that is, you know, an acceptance and acknowledgement of the McLaren report from, from the government and, and state officials. So um, I think when you when we see that and and that, that when we hear that it, it may represent the the cultural shift that I think many in the anti-doping movement are waiting for and hoping for. And, and Becky, b- before I let you go here, uh, I mean obviously pe- people uh, know your story from competing in in the Olympics, and obviously you know you are from Northern Alberta, so a lot of people have have, have followed you and know all about you. Um, but you have you've been with WADA's uh, athlete committee for quite a while now. I mentioned you're the chair. Um, I don't know if this is an easy <laughs> answer to summarize, but give, give people a, a sense of, of of what your work is now and maybe how you feel it. it uh, you're, you're contributing because I think the, you know, people hear your title and they know it's an important title, but what, what, is, what is the day-to-day work like? <laughs> well, I mean, as chair of the, the athlete committee, you know, we really strive to represent the voice of the clean athletes and to ensure that it's heard at every level and every table within the World Anti-Doping Agency and really within the, the sport political movement at large. So it's a, it's a very representative role in that we're trying to always ensure the athletes are heard, that the voices and the opinions and the perspectives, positions, statements are, are put out and that really that, um, you know, the athletes are stakeholders in the movement and they, and they really are, you know, the biggest stakeholder because there wouldn't be sport without athletes uh, is is acknowledged and, and honored and um, so to that end you know I have a very strong committee of people that I that I work together with and um, share share a lot of discussions and, uh, and but by and large working on behalf of clean athletes and ensuring that that voice and that perspective is brought to the table. Well, that's very important. Becky, thanks for your perspective on this. Really appreciate your time here on Inside Sports. Take care. Thank you, Reed. Bye-bye. Always great to have Becky Scott on the show. Uh, you know, she has, um, she's incredible. I, I mean, one of the few North American cross-country skiers to ever win an Olympic medal, and uh, she continues to do great work for clean for clean athletes in the Olympics and international events. We got another show tomorrow, believe it or not. I don't know if we're going to top this one, Kellen Kennedy. Woo! That was a fun one. Action-packed. Actually, that was an action-packed. That was We had more action tonight than the average episode of Knight Rider. Yeah, that show did the have action, some dead spots That was it. the only thing this show was missing was a talking car. If someone's car talks, call in in the next 90 seconds and we'll put it on. I have a truck that talks out in the parking lot. <laughs> Not like it, though. No. Mine's going... <laughs> tomorrow, so. this is cool. All, all day tomorrow on 6.30 Chet, we're going to have the 24th annual auction for 6.30 Chet, Santa's Anonymous. Between 6 and 7 tomorrow night, we're going to auction off the Sports Lovers Package. Four tickets to the Oilers against the Avalanche on February 1st, as well as four tickets to an Eskimos game during the 2018 season. 
all day tomorrow, starting at 7 in the morning, you'll be able to bid on a seat from the Coliseum autographed by former Oilers star Ryan Smith. So really cool stuff, and there are things to bid on during other shows as well. we got the face-off game, Nate and the Golden Bears, at Northlands Coliseum on Saturday. And then Friday, uh, next Friday, uh, Ryan Smith obviously involved as an owner of the Spruce Grove Saints. They're going to play the Okotoks Oilers AJHL game, last game ever at the Coliseum, and that's going to be the big farewell weekend. Thanks to our guest tonight. You heard from Becky Scott, Wojtek Bochitski, former owner of the Edmonton Drillers, WHL referee Derek Zalaski, and Tony Twist was our latest installment of Enforcers Week here on 630Chet. Get more on the Oilers on 630Chet.com. Their next game is Saturday in Montreal, 3.30 face-off show, 5 o'clock for the start of the game. All right. Kellen Kennedy, the studio producer. Dave Campbell's the producer. Thanks to both of you for your hard work. My name is Reed Wilkins. Really appreciate you tuning in. Adler's next. See ya. Six thirty, Chad. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at six on Six Thirty, Chad.